in the not too distant future, following the rapid succession of World Wars 3 and 4, plus the hidden horrors of secret World War 2. There's not much left. All that remains is a place where folks get together to read and discuss comic books. Sometimes they laugh, sometimes they argue, but they always record and upload their transmissions. You've found one of those transmissions today. Welcome to The Last Comic Shop. Time for more of the last comic show. And I am the host with the most, Andy Larson, and welcome back to another fantastic week of our broadcast where we bring to you comic books that we read in our spare time that you should check out in your spare time. And on today's program, it's another one of J.A. Scott, my wonderful co host's picks. And of course, as always, he likes to go deep down into those archives and pick out neat and interesting things that everybody should check out. And what was this week's book, J.A.? Uh, this week we dove into Frank Miller's Ronin, Ooh. which was a six-issue miniseries from D.C. back in the early 80s. The 1980s, that is. Not the 1880s or the 1780s. <laughs> I'm and, glad you uh, specified <laughs> Just for those folks that, I don't know, are immortal and living in caves. Well, you never know. (laughs) But yes, uh, we've also got uh, my other co-host, Chad Smith, on today's program. And Chad, this was actually uh, first brought up because of a story that you had told on a previous episode, right? That's right. So it was the the one and only time this has ever happened. As I I've been known to frequent the dollar bin uh, from time to time, but the trick with the dollar bins, you can't go in there looking for something specific. You're never going to find something specific. But one day, I had 20 minutes to to kill, and I was like, I'm going to go to the comic shop and see if I can find Ronin Two, as I had previously pulled Ronin books one, three, four, five, and six, and lo and behold. In that one box, five minutes in, what did I find? But Ronan 2, I completed the set! It never happens! <laughs> so, I guess from the last time that you told this story to this time, I did have one question for you, which is like, do you have like a somewhat of a mental catalog in the back of your mind that you're just like, I should find Ronan 2, I should find Batman 365, I should find this book. <laughs> Because I, like, I need to get that one John Byrne Superman. I have get that mental... today! I got my last John Byrne Superman. I needed World of Metropolis number four, and I found it! Guess what else I found in the dollar bin today, guys? What'd you find? Star Wars number one. No! Yeah, doesn't have cover. It's total garbage. <laughs> but I got it anyway, because it was a buck! It was a dollar! Why not? That has wonderful Howard Chaykin art. Ah, it's great stuff. I actually already have it blown up in the uh, the treasury form. Yes. So I stumbled across those in a $5 bin. I got Star Wars, the treasury edition one and two, which has the first six issues. And man, that's a fun book. Maybe that's going to be my recommendation today. I've got, a, I've got a question. Do you segregate your books based on the, the price that you paid for them? Like, this is my dollar bin section. This is my $5 bin section. This is my retail section. I don't like to talk about those so much. <laughs> right. 
Because I was a sucker and bought retail. How, how dare you? As far as my wife knows, they're all dollar books. <laughs> That's the correct answer, but, sir. But no, to answer Andy's question, do I keep a mental catalog? Dude, have you ever talked to me? I can't, I don't know what day it is. <laughs> I have spreadsheets. I have a Google Sheet form that I'm checking through and... I go through gotta gotta gotta. Do I need this? I don't know. I gotta check. Ah, okay. Gotta gotta gotta. All yeah, right. That's how the process goes. Well, now that you've finished your John Byrne Superman run, like, is there another run that you're trying to put together? Is something well, you're going to be working on? Now I have to read the John Byrne Superman run. <laughs> but I, I'm like an axe juggler. I've always got things flying through the air. So if I find a comic shop, or you know, I'm always slipping through, and there's you know always holes to be filled and new series to find and then to fill in those gaps and there's also so i gotta ask that. if you if you fail to to look at your your google sheet do you have like a book that you constantly think oh i need to get that and so you end up with like three or four copies of the same dollar bin book it's been known to happen uh in particular you remember the the spider-man series that todd mcfarlane started yes i need issue i think it's 42 but I always forget what issue I need. And so I bought four copies of issue 40. And I bring it home. I'm like, this is not the one. This is the one that fooled me last time. It's like, I knew that happened. It's like the streets it. in Pittsburgh where I've gotten lost so many times. I know I have no idea where I actually am. And all the, the landmarks are familiar because I've been lost there before. But none of the connections are there. So. Just real quickly off the top, what 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 happens in issue forty? Like, what's what's on the cover of issue forty? Just so I can keep a mental, I don't know. Like, now you it's, have four copies of it. I know, it is the story I, with Electro and it's Klaus Janssen who we we're talking about earlier on the art. You know, my favorite issue from that entire series is that Spider-Man book that Todd McFarlane started. I think it's issue nineteen, uh, where he basically fights Thanos. Because he dies while trying to get barbecue sauce for Aunt May or something? Oh, that's, yeah, that's 17. Oh, 17. Okay, I knew it was in the teens. Yeah, that was right after uh, Todd McFarlane left on 16. Ah, do you know I got that book in in a Walmart pack? Nice. I was lying to you. I keep buying the Electro issue. This was actually Spider Man's crossover with Iron Fist with the Jay Lee art. Ah, so that's the one that you that's the one you need? That's the one I need. Yeah. Okay. That's so the one I need is 42. And so I, but I always forget and there's an electro series that I guess I was missing an issue for a time and uh I always buy that one instead. Is that or, the is that the electro story where he gets like all juiced up and they try to make him super powerful for like 10 seconds? Yeah, they always do that. They do that once a generation. They did a really good one uh, with the gauntlet where Electro got super juiced up, but then he became like an anti-hero, like he was a good guy. And then he blew up the Daily Bugle. I will say, his his power set, like, honestly, I've, I've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. He should be as, like, as powerful as Magneto, because he controls electrons, and that is a basic building block of all matter. It's like being able to control protons or something. Like, you should be ungodly powerful if you can control electricity at the base level. But the problem is that, especially in this modern day and age, there's not a lot of 
telephone and electrical wire poles anymore for him to go skating down the side of the road. <laughs> that was the best from the Spider-Man 67 show. Anyways, we've got more Last Comic Shop coming up right after these messages. We're going to get to actually talking about Ronan and Frank Miller, to be honest. So stay tuned for all of that. Welcome to Victims and Villains. This is the channel where we talk nerd, we talk hope, and we speak nothing else. I'm your host, Captain Nostalgia, and I'm so glad that you're here to join us. Victims and Villains is a podcast and YouTube channel that marries pop culture and suicide prevention, producing content with the intent to let people know that there is hope and that there is a better way and that each and every listener has value and worth. Listen to Victims and Villains on your favorite podcast catcher or on YouTube by searching for Victims and Villains. Also, check out their website, victimsandvillains.net. the last comic shop and it is now time to talk about frank miller a member of the kind of i don't know mount rushmore of at least modern day comic book writers artists whatever it's these are the people that everybody knows about like you Heck know yeah i mean you ha- you have the class from the 60s with your stands and jacks and steve ditko's and then when you, you talk about the the next class the next defining age uh, who else would you put up on that Mount Rushmore? I mean, uh, if I was going to throw my four Mount Rushmore members from at least this kind of modern, I, I'd probably put uh, Alan Moore, uh, Frank Miller, um, Neil Gaiman, because that's somebody everybody knows. Like, I don't particularly like his stuff, but like everybody knows him. And uh, gosh, for the fourth one, that's hard. That's really hard. It's got to, I don't know, maybe one of the image guys. This is where I struggle. Sorry for interrupting you. But growing up, we always learned there were four ages of comics. You had the Golden Age, which is all the stuff that Andy reads that I don't care about. (laughs) You had the the Silver Age. Starts with what? The Flash? Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, I thought Silver Age was Fantastic. No, it's uh, Showcase number four. First Flash. That's the official start. And that goes up to, say, the death of Gwen Stacy? Yes. That's usually the end. That's the beginning of Bronze, yep. And the Bronze Age, we'll say that goes up until 1986, when you yeah. get Frank Miller's and Alan Moore's taken over. From there, it's been 30 years since I've had to define that stuff. What are the other ages? What should be an a- yeah. Is What's the age after Bronze? Because it can't all just be modern anymore. Because then the 90s kind of gets lumped into this, like, dark ages. The early aughts are like the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We had it's Sugar true. Ray. We cannot consider that a good decade because we had <laughs> him. No, I, <laughs> you're right. I, I think about it all the time that, like, again, we've moved on beyond Generation X and now millennials, and now even Generation Z, or, or whatever you want to call it. You can't just lump everything from 1986 to now into just modern comics. There's there's no way. There has to be a defining point when you're like, nope, now it's moved on to the next age. And you call that, I don't know, what comes after bronze? Yeah, I've or, seen things like platinum and like tungsten. the precious metal thing gets kind of, yeah, <laughs> cubic zirconium. But I, I don't even know where that would end. 
because I, I would honestly say that like Brian Michael Bendis probably belongs on the Mount Rushmore of the newer age, whatever that is. I don't think he's on Iron. the Mount Rushmore with the with the Frank Miller because that's a different different age period for me. How many Mount Rushmores do you want to have? <laughs> well, all right, back to my original point. Name me one other person who should be on the Mount Rushmore if you were going to say Frank Miller, Alan Moore. And well, I, I have to Neil say Gaiman. this now before I forget. I've always considered the Mount Rushmore to be our uh, geographical tattoo, where it's like, ah, we just decided to carve a bunch of faces into the side of this mountain. It's like, you want to undo that? It's going to take some doing. I don't know if I'm a fan of all those tattoos. <laughs> okay. All these big old heads. I don't are know you if saying, I'm Are you saying Mount Rushmore is a tramp stamp? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Well, regardless of whether it's a tramp stamp or not, give me at least one other name that goes on this board with those other three guys. It's hard to to discount the image guys in the impact. I think you got to do McFarlane. Yeah. Really? Over Jay Lee or or Jim Lee? Like, if you were going to pick one of them out, you were saying it's Todd. Because he he was actually a okay writer and much more influential. (laughs) Yeah, but better than Jim Lee. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's not a, that's not a high bar. <laughs> and I I feel terrible, like, but there's something so vanilla about Jim Lee's art. Well, I was going to say that his it's art very is, good. Yeah. Uh, there's just something about it that lacks some some juge, some panache, some je ne sais quoi. Heck, you could probably say Eric Larson has had more of an impact than Jim Lee, just because like didn't it's more or less like everything he did after that, like he was. Uh, he, All right, he basically now, ran image. Now I'm ready to pick nits. I think you can't include the 90s because now you're leaving out people like John Byrne and Chris Claremont. Don't they huh. deserve spots on this giant tattoo? I, I think Jim Shooter is a big name from that particular era as well. But like at the end of the day, I'm just trying to talk about Frank Miller and how everybody knows who freaking Frank Miller is. Like just like everybody knows who Alan Moore is. And that goes beyond comic books. Like if you were to name... You know, folks on the street, they probably would know who Frank Miller was and say, oh, yeah, that guy with the comic book thing. I Well, they've also made several movies with Frank Miller properties and several movies with Alan Moore properties. So that, I think, helps. helps and the with same the, thing yeah. with Neil Gaiman. That's what I'm saying. Is there another guy that's like that? You know, that you can you'd be like, oh, they made tons and tons of movies of his stuff. They made a Spawn movie. So I guess Todd McFarley. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, long story short, we're doing Ronin on today's program. Uh, as mentioned by J.A. before the commercial break, it was done in 1983 into 1984. I think it started in 83 and then finished mm-hmm. in 84. It was done uh, by DC. At the time, I think Frank Miller was working for Marvel. And Jim Shooter did say that initially, yeah, you know, you could write Ronin for my group. But he decided, nah, maybe something broke down in discussions, and he ended up going to D.C. and doing it instead. And I think Janak Khan had a lot to do with, actually, the printing of Ronin, which does, which makes perfect sense, because she eventually had everything to do with all of those other independent books that were released kind of in the uh, the 80s at uh, D.C. And, and kind of moving the needle in terms of the independent market. But yeah, let's go ahead and get really the quickly the, the 10 cent synopsis for Frank Miller's Ronin. And that comes directly from our co-host, J.A. Scott, since it was his pick. So, J.A., what happens in these six issues of the Ronin miniseries? 
All right, well, this is a book that takes place both in feudal Japan and a dystopian future in New York, where uh, this guy with no arms and no legs is hooked up to a living bionic computer system. He's got this mutant weird ability where his mind can create basically reality and the computer is trying to take over the world and forces him to create a reality where he's basically living out the fantasy as a ronin as uh which for those of you who don't know what a ronin is that is a samurai who has lost his master and has not killed himself out of fealty to his master so he wanders the countryside righting the wrongs while trying to avenge his master and, and die a, an honorable death and the idea of the ronin is a very um, steeped in tradition in japan so this guy with no arms and no legs uh creates a whole fantasy and ronin comes into the future and is fighting a demon but the demon is just a representation of this guy's fears of this computer system that's taking over the world okay Legless, armless dude pretends he's a samurai in a futuristic uh, robot uh, headquarters. <laughs> you didn't say dystopian. You have to get just, dystopian in there. Dystopian. That's true. And, and I'm glad you used the term headquarters because that's pretty much all this guy had. He just, <laughs> just had a head oh. and some quarters. That's it. That's it. But um, there are so many books that we could have picked to cover as our first Frank Miller book on The Last Comic Shop. We could have picked Sin City or Dark Knight Returns or 300. A lot of books that are really, really well known uh, among uh, not only comic book circles, but just common geekdom. But uh, we picked Ronin. And I'm kind of glad we did because up until uh, this show, I had never read the book. And... It kind of made me start to think about how the fact that it's really hard for me not to equate Frank Miller in some ways of being kind of like the Quentin Tarantino of comic book writing for good and for bad. You know, there are some times when I've enjoyed Quentin Tarantino movies. There are other times when I've thought that they've been over the top and uh, in kind of bad taste. And it seems like Frank Miller is pretty much the same thing in which I've enjoyed a lot of Frank Miller and other times I'm just like, this is just nuts. This is just, this is just not good for anybody. And I don't know where he's going with this. Yeah. I, I love that analogy. So if dark Knight returns is Frank Miller's pulp fiction, then Ronan is definitely reservoir dogs. It's sort of what set everything else that Frank Miller did up. I think so. I mean, yes, obviously the Daredevil stuff came before Ronan, but I think Ronan really established Frank Miller as, okay, this is the guy who's going to give you, you know, a mini series or a contained storyline. It doesn't have to exist within a greater universe and it's going to sell a lot of copies and it's going to get a lot of eyes and it's going to get a lot of pulp printed about it. So I, I do love that analogy. And I also think stylistically it fits too. Quentin Tarantino's always got the trunk opening. Frank Miller's always got the black and white panel and a couple of the other art quirks that, you know, the first time you see it blows your mind. But after that, you're kind of like, yeah, I saw that in, in this one by Frank yeah. Miller or that one by Frank Miller. They're both obsessed with samurai stuff. Yeah, that, that was what I was going to mention was uh, in, you know, lots of things that I've read about Frank Miller is the notion that he was trying to kind of bridge the gap between Japanese manga and American comics that like 
you know, American comics were sometimes way too wordy and uh, didn't do enough with the uh, the art, as opposed to Japanese manga, which did a lot with the art, but didn't have enough words. But in honestly, what he was trying to do for me was just kind of synthesize all this stuff like for Quentin Tarantino does and be like, you know what I love? You know, martial art films from the 70s and black exploitation films from this era. And I like this and this. And I'm just going to throw it all in a pot and stir it up. And Heck yeah. With Ronan, you get the lone wolf and cub influence that, uh, you know, I think people readily recognize. I also felt a lot of like heavy metal in this, that European style with, especially when we got to the technological parts, it's technological enough. If you look too close, especially with the Frank Miller stuff on the art scenes, like the stuff just starts breaking down. Just like in a heavy metal magazine. If you look at things too close, like, wait a minute, that doesn't really make sense. Mm. But like, in here, it happens in a visual format. Whenever you see that city and it's growing and like, you know, it's all sketchy and it looks like, I don't know if you finished this drawing. Mm. It, it, it's like, right. It, it's almost like, is that moss I'm looking at? Or is it just he put some squiggles in and somebody painted green over it? Yeah. To me, uh, the story itself was really reminiscent of sort of like Kurosawa meets William Gibson. And I looked it up because obviously this came out 83, 84. Gibson's first big sort of sci-fi thing was Burning Chrome in 82. So it fits with that whole burgeoning cyberpunk idea in science fiction so i think frank miller tapped into something that was just coming out in the scene in in popular science fiction writing uh and mixed that with his ideas and his love of of samurai to really create this unique property shogun and was the big thing in 1980 and that kick-started the samurai craze yeah combine that with the sci-fi And I'm kind of glad that you brought up the whole notion of heavy heavy metal as well, Chad, because honestly, at times when he was drawing the cyberpunk futuristic stuff, I I really felt like, man, this is like Frank Miller just aping Mobius. Like, all I could think of was Mobius and the Encal. Though I think Mobius' art is much more delicate, much finer, and Frank Miller always had that edge to it it's if you look at the image guys they almost took okay i see how frank's doing that so we're just gonna do lines for everything we're, we're not gonna do shadows we're gonna do crosshatched lines because frank miller was one of the first artists to to create shadows with you know multiple squiggly lines as opposed to just making something dark or shaded you're right that um you know mobius was a lot more frank wiley i think honestly at times it's really hard for me when i look back at some of these early Frank Miller books for me not to think a lot of eventually the artwork that uh, John Romita Jr. eventually came out with. It looks similar in some ways in which people have like square jaws, but they're really truly square. They're, it's like they're carved out of wood and you're like, okay, I get that. That's stylistically neat looking, but people really don't have jaws like that in real life. Like, uh, they don't look like they were carved out of a piece of cedar tree. Like, it's it's weird. But when it comes to the story, because we've done a lot of talk about the art, boy, did this story take me a long time to just wrap my head around. Like, I remember being like four issues into this, and I'm like, okay, what am I not getting? What am I missing? Where am I not picking up? What you're laying down, Frank Miller. And I think, honestly, by the end of it, when you find out that this was all this Billy guy that didn't have arms and legs and it was all a mentally created prison 
by this supercomputer that was trying to control his powers. I still didn't like buy it, and I was just like, "What?" Like, it was the you- cave. Story of the cave. There you go. I see. I loved it. I mean, you know, I'm a big William Gibson fan and cyberpunk fan, so maybe that plays into it. But I love the sort of unpacking the mystery box and trying to work out what was going on and and these weird jumps between you know post-apocalyptic future and feudal japan and why are they connected and what's going on with this demon slash president of the corporation yeah no i i would say too that the first issue focuses really heavily on the feudal japan stuff and i was really digging that kind of a little bit sad that they didn't dive deeper into that before they started leaning more heavily into the sci-fi. And that's where it gets a little bit rough. One of the big things that I think is going to hold this book back. Future success. Yeah, but, I think uh, that some of the dialogue uh, doesn't hold up as well as it probably should. Uh, you know, sensibilities have changed. There's some language that uh, I was just rereading, for example, um, God Loves Man Kills. And there's a whole article in the beginning of the the trade that I got. It's a new printing where they talk about some of the language that was in the book and, and that they changed some of it because it doesn't fit anymore. Uh, you know, derogatory names and, and uh, some of the language. So I agree with you on that. Another thing, uh, you're looking at, I mean, you compare Ronin and Dark Knight Returns, man – there are a lot of Nazis in Frank Miller's future telescope. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, and yeah. it's funny, too. We were talking about the art, and you mentioned how it's not as delicate as a lot of other artists. That's the same with Frank Miller's writing style. He doesn't have that delicacy. Like, even going back to God Loves Man Kills from Chris Claremont, when that language is in there, you can tell why it's there, what purpose it's serving. Whereas when I, I, I read some of the Frank Miller stuff, it is like he's going for the Tarantino-esque shock value of like, look, this word's here. Look, I'm going to use it again. You thought that word was bad? Wait till I use this one. Well, it's, it, that's that's the way that I felt about a lot of the story, in, in essence. Is like, again, it's, it's a macho man's wet dream, pretty much. Like, I mean, again, there's this guy that's pretty much, you know, a social freak, picked on all of his life, forgotten about, made to basically sit in front of a computer he recreates himself as like this perfect macho man killing machine. Slice anything in half and beds the babe with pretty much little to no effort. You know, kills indiscriminately. And uh, you can tell that like you want to give Frank Miller the benefit of the doubt that it's done to kind of, I don't know, tell a bigger story. This computer system is controlling the one guy by giving him everything he ever wanted. And it's basically placating him into not using his true power or let them eat cake analogy. But at the same time, I feel like it was just like, yeah, you know who reads comic books? Dudes like this guy. You know what they want to do? They want to be Wolverine. And they just want to run around the sewers and cut up weird crumbly mutants. That's the other thing. What's up with the crumbly mutants all the time? Like they didn't even like what is what is on their faces? What is that? Did they eat a lot of cake? Or did they eat a lot of Oreos or something? Like it's like they've got like pustules like everywhere. I'm like, nobody looks like that. Even after like a century. Like or or I don't know. That's the rot of the post-apocalypse. It's the rot of something. Not wanting to draw people. <laughs> and just 
taking a shortcut and being like, this looks cool. Nah, I, it, I, I don't think it holds up well from that perspective. I don't think the future stuff, I was digging the Ronin stuff in the past. And I wish it would have stayed there because like I taxed my brain and not in a good way. Well, so this is where I, I'm kind of curious. Ronin is very exemplary of Frank Miller in a lot of aspects, whether it is the samurai aspects, whether it's the overuse of violence, whether it is the language, you know, that blunt, he's like the bull in the china shop in every way, shape, and form. Uh, and he used those skills to great effect with Batman and The Dark Knight Returns. But I'm curious, do you think the way that Frank Miller is has been held in such high esteem in comic book circles since the 80s, think that holds up moving forward because like looking at this story i read it and like of its time it's great but uh reading it today there are definitely a ton of cringeworthy parts and i'm curious if you think frank miller's still going to have the same cachet in 2035 that he did in 1985 i i think he will as a sum of its parts rather than the parts alone people will look at his entire run his entire output and be able to judge that in its entirety as opposed to pulling out you know this here or that there and definitely dark knight is the high point of that arguably but i think if you judge it all together as one lump sum yes he will hold up there will be parts that don't hold up as well as other parts and you see that with any artist You know, there are always things that are a little bit more of their time and place rather than something that exists without time or place. You know, for for every Casablanca, there's uh, From Here to Eternity or something. I don't know. That's a bad example. (laughs) It's a horrible example. Those are two good movies. I know, no, no. They're not even both Michael Curtiz movies. Come on. At least you could say, like, two Michael Curtiz movies. That's way harder than I was going to say. I was going to say Billy Madison. (laughs) I don't think that Frank Miller is going to hold up as well as some other people from that same generation. I personally think that he's a lesser writer than Alan Moore, to be honest. I think that the Alan Moore stuff that he was writing about the same time as Frank Miller does hold up a lot better than Frank Miller of that same time period. I think the outlier in all of that, you know, is honestly born again for me, even. I don't even think it's the Dark Knight Returns. I'd rather say it's it's born again because even dark Knight returns. Yeah. There's some good points to it, but I don't think it's as good as Watchmen. And I think that, you know, we, we even covered saga, the swamp thing on this particular program or V for vendetta league of extraordinary gentlemen. I think these books hold up uh, and will be looked back more fondly by folks going forward than Frank Miller, who I'll be honest, the shines come off of him in the last couple of years. I, I mean, I didn't even read any of his sequels to The Dark Knight Returns just simply because I heard from folks about how, I don't know, he had gone off a little bit of the deep end with some of the almost racist kind of things that were in those books, right? Right. And so the in comparing Alan Moore and Frank Miller, I think the one thing Frank Miller has going for him is that he's the total package. He doesn't just write, he does the art, you know, he packages everything all together. Yeah, I, I agree. It's apples and oranges. I think, you know, you're you're spot on, Andy, that the writing, you know, just if you're just comparing the writing, there, there's no real comparison. But with Frank Miller, you're getting all that other stuff, too. You're getting the visuals, which is 
as important, if not more important than than the writing. And when you see the Sin City movies, for example, that was done to look like a Frank Miller comic book panel. For sure. And that's another thing, too, is the way that Frank Miller, his style artistically has changed and evolved over time. Like the Frank Miller you saw on his first run in Daredevil is different than the Frank Miller you see here in Ronin. And I think he extends that style into The Dark Knight Returns. But then when he hits Sin City, it's a whole different monster. And now even today, within the last couple of years, he's still producing work. It's continued to evolve, even up to Superman Year One, I think, is the most recent thing that he's done. But also, with what Andy was talking about earlier, there are some things where, when you look at Frank Miller's writing, like he's the guy who wrote the All-Star Batman, who was just a crazy person, and you know, looks at Robin, who he's basically just kidnapped, and he's like, I'm the goddamn Batman. Like, you're a lunatic, Frank. Right. He also wrote Holy Terror, which I've heard really awful things about. Yeah, which was supposed to be a Batman story. Right. And then DC's like, oh, I don't want to do this. And so he released it on his own, you know, changed some things around. Yeah. But just. Well, I think you nailed it. I think with your whole Tarantino thing, he's Tarantino, right? Tarantino is renowned for having all of this over-the-top language, like saying the N-word 50 times, 100 times in a movie for no reason. Whereas you, somebody else uses it once, and it's so much more powerful. So one thing that's always powerful is our rating section. And we've got one of those coming up right after these messages. So stay tuned for more of The Last Comic Shop. Uh, our final thoughts on what we thought of Frank Miller's Ronin. Interruption in progress. Now hijacking into ANS 2.0 immersion rig. Now simulating the amazing nerd show. Featuring comics. <laughs> and- Batman's like, you're safe here and everything, but the Joker all of a sudden pulls out a gun and shoots himself. Movies. People fight with lightsabers. What the hell do you want? I mean, you're every. I mean, in every one of these movies, there's a lightsaber battle. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm going to rewatch it a million times. Yeah. I'm just saying, <laughs> give me something more. Wrestling. That would be awesome. Oh my God. Just a monster. <laughs> Fans would be like, holy, what the hell's going on? What happened to Jericho? Horror. It starts off like any other like home invasion type of story, and then it just goes crazy. And more. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Dan. And we are the Amazing Nerd Show. Make sure to download us on all your favorite podcast platforms. All right, we're back with more of The Last Comic Shop, and it is now time for our rating, where we have, again, the audacity to say to Frank Miller, look, you created this book almost three or four decades ago, And we've decided that not only are we going to read it, but we're going to assign numerical value to it. How about them apples? Quentin Tarantino of the comic book world. One out of four scale. And J.A. Scott is going to give us what that scale is based on for this week. So what are we rating Ronin? So I was really wanting to go with something Japanese and feudal, and I was leaning towards tatami mats, only because I wanted to hear what sound effect you would come up with for a tatami mat. But I'll make it easier, and we'll go with the obvious samurai sword. All right, samurai swords. Already used that sound effect. Use that sound effect often on our show. But yeah, one out of four samurai swords, and of course, since... 
was your book. You get first dibs, sir. So what are you going to rate this uh, particular book, J.A.? So I almost want to give it four samurai swords, though I've got to take away a little bit because, again, uh, we talked about some of the problematic language. You know, it's uh, not problematic, over the top. So I'm going to have to give it three samurai swords and a tanto blade. So that's like, you know, three and a half. Okay. As I said earlier, big William Gibson, big cyberpunk fan. So it was it was checking all the boxes for me samurais kurosawa cyberpunk future stuff and one thing we didn't get into uh that i wanted to mention was the beautiful coloring by lynn varley i thought combining you know really brought out the beauty in frank miller's art some of the big panels must have been incredible i mean well i was reading it digitally but if you're getting the actual comic book where they were like two-page spreads and whatnot. So I'd be interested to hear what Chad had to say because I know he bought the books, obviously, in the dollar bin. All right, so the one thing you're missing out on is in issue six is the triple gatefold. It's actually four pages long of the explosion. Wow. That is gorgeous. I won't lie. Yeah. those are the things that you miss when you get books digitally. That kind of, it's part of the actual printing of the book. You know what I mean? Like, it's a stylistic choice to do that kind of spread over that. It's expensive, pages. too, to do that. So the production values, that looks very much above sort of your standard run-of-the-mill comic back in the day. And it was. Although today you can see those those gatefolds uh, much more commonly. They'll use them for advertisements and things, so it's not that part's not as much of a big deal. But when Frank Miller went to DC to do his story, there were certain things that he fought for, including uh. he wanted to do this bigger. He wanted his books to have a spine. He wanted them to have the higher quality paper, and he won out on everything except for the spine. Mm. All my dollar copies, you can see where the spine is damaged because they didn't do... I, I don't know if I'm phrasing this right. Well, it wasn't the square bound. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it doesn't hold up as well. But he did get that for uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Ah. Did he also get the, the blue M&Ms? These are all <laughs> the riders in his contract, right? Exactly. That's so they made sure that people were paying attention to the safety measures for the pyrotechnics. You already told that story. (laughs) I like that story, too. Very impressive, actually. When you just see the issue-wise. For that ring in 1983, like they were like, wow, I need to get that. That's an event. And yeah, and that's one of the things about this series. Like It went to the direct market, and it was comics that were aimed at adults. But those were all things that weren't uh, common practice at the time. So a lot of Ronin, we've talked about how you know may or may not hold up as well with age. Frank Miller was really pushing the envelope to get this made the way that he did. And because of Ronin, so many other things came out of that that you, you have to consider the historical context when you're looking at this as a whole. So speaking of that, Chad, what, what is your rating for Ronin? Okay, this is tough because... There's a lot of things that worked for it. There are a lot of things that I thought, oh, it's not the not the best I've seen. So, like, the stuff that worked, I really enjoyed the Japanese samurai aspects. I thought it was cool. There was a, a positive uh, a female protagonist uh, who was, you know, kicking just as much butt, you know, as the Ronin. Uh, she wasn't just a damsel in distress. I thought the idea, the mashup between all the sci-fi and cyberpunk elements 
and the samurai stuff. That was that was fun too. Like, and if you think of so many things that have come since then, there's a lot that I feel have have sampled what Frank Miller has done and try to take that stuff to the next level. And as you alluded to, I think Andy, this is definitely a macho muchacho book. Uh, and so on all those notes, it does really well. However, I think I, I dig it a little bit. Sometimes I didn't feel like the art was always a, a finished product. And I don't know if that was part of him not just meshing these categories, but also the, the European style and the manga style. It just didn't work for me whenever you put it all together. Like towards the tail end of the story, we're like, no, it's science and magic and samurai stuff. And I'm like, all right, all right, that's enough. So I'm glad we read it. I, I think if I was reading it as it was coming out, I'd probably have a, a higher score because I'd be more steeped in the time. But uh, with all that said, I don't think this holds up. So I'm going to give a 2.75 Samurai Swords. I respect the things that it did, and I think it was super important, and I'm glad we read it. I think I talked about it on the previous show. This is so influential. Whenever I was reading it, I was picking out the homages. I'm like, oh, that's where that Rob Liefeld picture came from, where Shatterstar stabs himself in the chest. That was That's from Ronan. But at the same time, like, there are too many cracks for it to be too high of a score for me. All right. Well, for me, I think it's going to be a two samurai sword book, honestly. Uh, I, I just had too many problems with it. You know, I, I, I get what chad and ja have mentioned about how you know it was very influential and it's very cool in some aspects and you can see how a lot of folks eventually aped what you know frank miller did in ronin and took it a couple steps further especially the uh kind of combination of samurai or ninja or uh you know these far eastern kind of concepts and like meshing it in with the futuristic cyberpunk aspects like nowadays that's commonplace there's a whole subgenre of cyberpunk that just deals with things that are like neo japan and and all that i mean even at the time like you know with the the blade runner movie and kind of got some aspects of that as well but gosh i have a hard time with just the plot Mm. you know i'm not a dumb guy like i read a lot of comic books that are a lot more in depth than this one And I don't know if it was the writing style or just the way that he wanted to keep certain things secret from you as the, you know, the reader until the huge reveal at the end that you were like, yeah, this is all in Billy's mind or the computer was controlling Billy and making him, you know, live out his fantasy in order to control his superpowers because it wanted to take over the world. I just been ah. I think that's just, it's a cop-out. And I don't know, maybe you just had some neat ideas. You were like, yeah, what it would be awesome if, like, a, you know, a, a samurai guy was running around cutting up futuristic soldiers or, you know, fighting mutants in the sewers. That's awesome. Like, I get that, but you can't build a whole book around it. But to Chad's point, I really did like the feudal stuff, and I would have loved to read a comic book that just dealt with all of that. Uh, whether or not it was just, again, Frank Miller rewriting uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, I know that it already existed, but I liked everything that he wrote, the Ronin fighting the the demon Agats, like that old stuff, that spoke to me. Like, I was like, yeah, that's just neat, uh, simple stuff, and I, and I dig it. 
It's just when they brought in like the president of the company and like his three subordinates and this guy. And I was just like, I don't know who these people are and why do I care? What, what got because, me with all the names was there too many mix. It was like McKenna and McKinnon and then there's Taggart, which I kept calling in my mind McTaggart. <laughs> like, who are these people? Middle management folks that like are nameless. Like, I need the guy from HR. I need the guy from finance. Like, I don't care about this company. Like, get to the point. Like, what's going on here? I, I, they were the bobs. Yeah. Like, they made robots out of moss. <laughs> How stupid is that? And you're like, oh, it's bio, it's bioelectronics or whatever. I don't even know what that is. Like that means you just don't want to draw a robot. It's like, it's like kelp seaweed. I don't, two, two, and that's being generous. There's better Frank Miller out there. Go read Born Again or any of my recommendations that we often do on this particular program. We always do recommendations. And on this show, we always do a book that's uh, current, a book that's similar, and a book out of left field. So make sure that you get out to your local comic book shop and maybe pick up Ronin. You can get it in like hardback or you can pick it up in single issues like Chad did. And get those fantastic four-page spreads. But other things that you can pick up while you're at the comic book shop include Chad's pick, which I think is, what, out of left field this week, right? Sure. So my pick is going to be another one that uh, it's tangentially related and that it deals with uh, samurai stuff. But this is Manhunter by Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson uh, with Klaus Jansen on colors, which I didn't know he was a colorist. But uh, this originally ran as eight-page backups in Detective Comics. And they had one full issue where they teamed up with Batman. But you can find this book collected in a a couple of different deluxe editions. But it really is a lot of fun. And it also mixes in not just the, the feudal concepts, but there are clones. And there are secret societies. And it has Walt Simonson art. And I was thinking about this. In my personal headcanon... I think that Walt Simonson is more important than Frank Miller. Let me rephrase that. I think Walt Simonson, when it's all said and done, is going to be regarded more highly than Frank Miller, at least by me. And you can see it when you compare these two stories. Manhunter still holds up today. The mystery is still there. The secret society stuff is still relevant to a lot of things that are going on. And because Walt was working with Archie Goodwin on that particular story, he's a master of his craft as well. It's just, it's comic booking at its best. I I couldn't agree more. It is super cool. It is one of my favorite, like, comic books that only, you know, again, it's like, what, 60 pages maybe from beginning to end. Like, it's not long. Like, no, maybe a little bit longer than that. Yeah, it's, I'd say, around 100 pages or so, but it's... But they're dense. Like, you you get your money's worth. Yeah. You know me. I always love that serialized storytelling. Like, how there's always cliffhangers at the end, and they, they make you wait for the next issue. And luckily, you get it. And then, even though Batman's in it, it really doesn't do a lot with uh, mainstream continuity. Uh, no. You don't need to know a lot about Manhunter in order to enjoy that book. And... It all wraps itself up at the end. Yeah. It's all a done in one thing. You don't have to worry about Manhunter 2. Manhunter returns for more manhunting. You know, I, I, I think we might end up reading that on a future show. I, I Now that you've brought it up, I'm going to reread Manhunter. So m- thank you for making that recommendation for me as well. Uh, we've got J.A. coming up next, and he's got our current book. I think it's current. Yeah. 
It's fairly current. It came out in uh, 2016. I, I mentioned a lot in our review of Ronin that it reminded me a lot of early William Gibson stuff. Well, what I'm going to recommend is a William Gibson comic book. It's his first foray into comics. He's mostly known for his novel writing. Uh, it's called Archangel. Five-issue limited series that was released by IDW Publishing uh, back in 2016 and 2017. It's been collected into a, a trade now, and you can also get it on Comixology. It's you know pretty readily available. And basically, it tells the story of uh, Junior Henderson, who's the vice president of the United States in an alternative 2016, who gets a hold of a time travel device gets plastic surgery goes back to 1945 to murder his grandfather so he can become his grandfather and change the timeline wow wait how does that work if you murder your grandfather can you become your grandfather or do you just stop being anything no that's not how time works didn't you see you you saw uh end game yeah but i didn't understand it i'm showing <laughs> holes is that how Michael uh, J. Fox wrote all Chuck Berry songs? <laughs> <laughs> and Van Halen, apparently. There you go. But unlike a lot of these stories, it doesn't just stay in 1945. So you're jumping back between the two because after he goes back in time, there's a faction in 2016 that opposes what he's doing and takes control of his time travel device. So then you get this kind of cool dichotomy between what's going on in this now alternate alternate 1945 and alternate 2016 and and how these these characters are 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 coming together to to try to rectify the situation so that is my recommendation if you like william gibson if you like you know the stuff he's done on neuromancer or the bridge trilogy i highly recommend this Uh, it's uh writing by william gibson uh and michael st john smith with art by Bruce Goyce, uh, inks Tom Palmer, uh, Sean Lee does the lettering, Diego Rodriguez is the colorist. As I said, it's IDW Publishing, 2016-2017. Uh, very, very cool. Well, as our similar pick for today's uh, show, I-, I wanted to go back to the Frank Miller archives and pick another book, which I feel like it's both similar and also different enough that if you didn't like Ronan, then well... Uh, you you get something a little bit better, at least in my opinion. And that would be, again, Frank Miller going back to his roots, writing some more wonderful Daredevil. Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. It was a five-issue miniseries that was put out in 1993. And uh, it honestly kind of reads a lot like the Hollywood script for a Daredevil movie in the actual 90s. Remember back in the 90s, this wasn't a, a decade in which like you could just make a comic book related movie and it could be popular. Like you had to actually say, well, this is an action movie that has some comic book characters in it. So when you get to this Daredevil, uh, The Man Without Fear, it's really the origin story of Daredevil. It tells the story about how Matt Murdock first gets blinded by the canister, how his dad was a boxer and, you know, also kind of somewhat of a mob enforcer, uh, but refuses to take a dive in a particular fight because of his pride and wanting to make his son proud of him and ultimately pays the price as the mob ends up killing him. But uh, from there, you get uh, Matt Murdock being trained by the ninja master, you know, stick, 
and uh, he meets Electra, and he goes to college, and Kingpin's in it. And again, it plays out without Matt Murdock putting on the Daredevil costume. In fact, he doesn't show up in the Daredevil costume until the very, very end. You do get a little of his black-masked ninja costume where he's, you know, running around with, you know, tights and a sweatshirt or whatever, like you would see on the Netflix uh, TV show for those people that watch that. But again, you don't get the superhero Daredevil until, like, again, the last couple of panels. And so you do get the origin story, and it's very well told. And it's got this kick-ass Elektra, just like you got the kick-ass samurai uh, woman and Ronin. So there's a lot of similarities between the two. And uh, oftentimes, you know, I, I go back and forth as to which is a better origin story, whether it's this or Daredevil Yellow. <laughs> Uh, which was done by uh, Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. But I think that's kind of like a Kirk Picard thing. They're all, both equally good, and they kind of tell a little bit of different stories. Uh, if, if you do have Comixology or Comixology Unlimited, you can read The Man Without Fear for free right now. It's part of the Comixology Unlimited package. Definitely something to check out. And uh, something that you'd also check out every single week is The Last Comic Shop at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. It is our terrific website where you can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, YouTube, CastBox, on a variety of other podcasting platforms. And I mean, Chad will attest, our episodes are really evergreen. Like, they can be listened to at any time. And so, yeah, that's one of the things that we aim for in the show. If you have recently read something that we've covered, you can go back and see what we thought about it. And heck, if you want to take the extra step, you can send us a comment, send us an email. We'll talk back to you about this stuff. We love talking about comics. That's why we do this thing in the first place. Absolutely. And some other terrific stuff that you can get via our website is what, J.A.? But you can get some merch. We've got shirts. We've got beer koozies. And this week only, kimonos. I would love a silk kimono. Oh, it would go with my cowboy hat. I'd be a regular Hawkeye from MASH. I'll ignore the Hawkeye from MASH part to just tell you guys, if you need to find a comic shop, you can go to the comic shop locator at www.comicshoplocator.com. And you can find a place near you where you can find your Ronins. You can find all kinds of stuff. Most likely, probably not kimonos, though. You know what I was just thinking of? Because you br- we brought up Hawkeye. This is the second we- show in a row that we've talked about Ronin. Because we did the Hawkeye show last week, and now we've done this Ronin show. I wonder if we can come up with another one. Yeah, we, we can always we can always do the uh, the comic book adaptation of 47 Ronin. Or the last Ronin, which is still coming out currently. Yeah, that Ninja Turtle thing. I'm excited about that. But I want to wait for that one to wrap up. So make sure that you, again, rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming reviews, because we might cover those books as well. And uh, until next time, I was the host of most, Andy Larson, and I was joined by Jay Scott and Chad Smith. And as always, stay safe, stay sheltered, and make sure all of your computers are made out of moss so they can truly be green technology. That's horrible. I, you know, I reckon uh, Chad's Mount Rushmore of 90s comic book artist is just Rob Liefeld. All Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld on X-Force. Rob Liefeld on Youngblood. Rob Liefeld on Troll. Rob Liefeld on Brigade. Rob Liefeld on Chapel. Rob Liefeld on Newman. 
Rob Liefeld on New Mutants. Rob Liefeld on Hawk and Dove. Rob Liefeld doing a fill-in thing in the Marvel uh, handbook with all the dead guys. The Zerg- <laughs> The last comic shop was a 2021 Black Angus production. Uh, Rob Liefeld doing that fill-in issue on the X-Men. Rob Liefeld doing some annual stuff and fighting American Liefeld. Oh man, so much Liefeld. Cable Liefeld.